church, if you'd open to Matthew 19, Matthew chapter 19. Start reading in verse 3. I'm going to read through verse 12. This is the word of God. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case that a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. And so, Father, we ask that we could receive this whole teaching on divorce today, what you spoke 2,000 years ago to these ones questioning what the Bible said about divorce. We pray you would give us the clarity that you gave them. We pray we would see what you have said and what you have revealed here. And that we wouldn't move to the right or to the left. But Lord, that we would we would understand and obey what you have told us about marriage. We pray that you would do these things for the sake of our marriages for the sake of your church and for the glory of your Son, to which all these things point. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is week 10 on this series on marriage. We will finish next week, and um, but not before dealing with this very difficult topic of divorce and remarriage. Um, it is the most difficult, in my opinion, most difficult aspect of marriage to study with what the Bible says uh, about divorce. And so um, anybody who says, no, this is a simple issue, uh, has not studied it biblically. Uh, because when you really weigh out all the passages, the relevant passages, you can see uh, there is a good amount of complexity to this. Um, now, let me just be clear. When I say complexity, um, the, the biblical complexity isn't the reason that divorce is so popular in our culture. Uh, it's not like people are studying the Bible and going, man, I just can't figure it out. There's so many things that are, uh, I'll just divorce. You know, they, they don't, 
our culture does not care what God says about marriage or divorce, uh, the, the, the complexity is not the problem here. We, we live in a day where it is actually increasingly popular to shamelessly boast of one's divorce publicly and uh, almost as if, if they found this newfound freedom from the, the bondage of marriage and then have a party thrown to them called the divorce party uh, is celebrating with friends and family their, their new freedom from their marriage covenant. Uh, we live in a day where the government, who should protect the sanctity uh, of marriage as a, as a legal institution, uh, creates evil laws like no-fault divorce, uh, which allow the dissolution of a marriage without any proof of wrongdoing from either party. You can essentially say, I don't like my spouse anymore, and you can be legally uh, divorced from them in 17 states officially, that's the law, uh, in all the other states, unofficially, no-fault divorce happens daily. Um, I actually heard, or, or saw last year, I was driving and, and saw a billboard that said that you can get a divorce if you avoid the lawyer fees uh, for under $200. And um, I think it's these type of ungodly laws surrounding divorce that are actually huge contributing factors to why so many young men don't want to get married in our day. Um, I, I think that they've calculated the risk and they feel the risk is too high. Uh, and they, they would agree with the idea that commitment to a spouse or to a wife is a good idea. Um, a lifelong partner uh, is, is a good idea. But when it comes to the idea of a marriage, uh, the, the risk they've calculated out and, and the risk is just simply too high. Uh, half of marriages end in divorce uh, statistically. 80% of those marriages are initiated by the woman. Um, and, and when a man begins to look at these statistics, realizing uh, she could take all my assets, my car, my house, my savings, 97% uh, of alimony payments go from men to women. And if kids are involved, uh, the, the child support and the fact that many men wouldn't even get to see their children uh, or very limited time uh, does not incentivize marriage, according to many young men in our day. Uh, you could argue, and it has been argued a lot, that historically marriage favored men and, uh, and not women. Today, you could never make that argument. It disproportionately favors women. And so many men and young men in their 20s and 30s are uninterested in marriage. Now, Someone may say, well, I don't think that's actually the reason. I, I would say it's just that young people don't like the idea of commitment, especially a lifelong commitment. And what I would say to that is I actually think uh, that's true, but I think the reason behind that is the boomer generation that so devalued marriage and so uh, divorced at a higher rate than any previous generation before them. So that in the boomer generation back Maybe you go back to the 70s, 80s, 90s. Uh, how many children sat with their parents and the mother and father sat down with them and said, uh, we love you, children. We just don't love each other anymore. And so we're getting a divorce. And it, it, is, it is that 
that generation that has cheapened marriage and popularized divorce. And I'm not, this isn't just my observation. Many cultural commentators are saying exactly what I've said. Uh, I think this is a general observation about the culture in which we live. And, and you think back too at, at other contributing factors, like go back to the 70s with some of the songs that were very popular, kind of mantras of that, of that day. And you come across songs like uh, Johnny Mitchell's famous song, uh, uh, 1971, My Old Man, with the refrain, uh, we don't need a piece of paper from City Hall to keep us tried and true. Four times, uh, that, that little anti-covenant mantra is repeated throughout the song, we don't need a piece of paper from City Hall to keep us tried and true. And then you combine that with the celebrity culture where divorce and remarrying is, happen as o- is happening as often as a, uh, a 1990s cheerleader is getting in, having multiple boyfriends. I mean, you, you put all these things together, and, and this, is, this is why people say things like, uh, the divorce rates are just as high in the church as in the culture, which I disagree with uh, on two fronts. First, uh, what, what do we mean by the church? I think many who say things like that aren't actually defining the church rightly. And I don't believe that there is as high a divorce in the, the true church, among the true church, uh, is what many would say. Additionally, I think numerous statistics would, would uh, advocate this at this point. I know one, I'll quote one Harvard professor who said, all those stats that divorce are as high in the church as in the world are wrong. He said it's actually only about 20 to 30% in the church and over 50% in the world. Now, 20 to 30%, in my opinion, is still way too high. And, um, and, it's, and it's actually quite troubling uh, with what has, has happened among professing Christians regarding this issue. Um, I would actually put the primary blame for what's happening in the culture on the issue of divorce, at the feet of professing even evangelical Christians in our day. Which is interesting because I think to Matthew 19, that's kind of the same context in which Jesus is dealing with the issue of divorce. People who claim to be God's people, yet even taking the Bible and trying to use it to find a religious loophole to get out of their marriage. It's really a strikingly similar context. And I want to look at three things here uh, in this passage to see about Jesus' response to those who wanted to get out of a marriage for virtually I- any reason. So look at verse 3. The Pharisees asked Jesus to test him. So this is the context. They're going to test him with a, a question on divorce. And here's what they ask. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus' answer isn't a quick yes or no. He says, back up, let's define marriage. What is a covenant marriage? And so before he answers her question on divorce, he wants to define a covenant marriage. So that's our first point today. The first question I want to ask is, what is a covenant marriage? 
Look at what Jesus says in verse 4. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or be glued to, to, to the literal Hebrew, to be glued to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Now here's, here's what's interesting. Again, we live in a day in which the vast majority of the populace would say that if a man and a man love each other, and if a woman and a woman love each other, they can be married. And anyone, especially a Christian, who would say, not only do I not agree, I don't think that's even possible, is thought, is thought to be the most bigoted, hateful people in the culture. Um, to, to say, I don't think love or feelings of love for another or uh, even laws that might legalize marriage are legitimate, uh, could actually create what's called a homosexual marriage. It's not actually possible. That belief that a, a Christian would take and, and why they would say such a thing is literally exactly what Jesus is saying, and, sa- and we're saying it because Jesus says it. it. Jesus essentially says, let's talk Bible here. He's a biblicist. Look at verse 4. Have you not read? Have you not read? So the Bible trumps your judicial laws and feelings. The authority of the Bible over the authority of feelings about love or whoever you want to love and commit to and legal systems that might justify it. The authority of the Bible, he starts, have you not read in the scriptures? Everybody has a starting authority. Everybody has an ultimate authority in which to judge right right or wrong, in which to know if their ethical system is right or wrong. Jesus is, is, have you not read? So for Jesus, feelings, love, Roman or Jewish legal systems must submit to the truth of the Bible. And so what does he do? He quotes Genesis 2. He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. So there's only two genders. Let's start there. Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And, and, And notice here, again, Jesus is treating Adam and Eve and the Genesis account as real historical documents with real historical people. Which, again, in a day like ours, where evolution is dominant, that's a significant point. To notice that Jesus is treating Genesis as history, and Jesus is treating Adam and Eve as real historical people. Uh, this, this is significant how Jesus understands and reads the Bible. Additionally, uh, we should note that he isn't giving a contractual view of marriage where you basically have uh, two people who come together and commit to each other, and that's what makes a marriage. Jesus is saying, he's given a covenant view, which is two people coming together, but then God also being a part of this. Um, God being a part. We see this in Malachi. It says, the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. She is your wife by covenant. So Jesus is giving us this definition of covenant marriage which I think has two components. It's amazing to me. I was actually thinking about this this morning while I was watering my plants. Um, (laughs) 
many people get married and don't even know what actually makes their marriage a marriage. They just know culturally, you know, we should have the wedding ceremony. And they don't actually even think about, like, what makes them two single people dating. And then after the wedding, they're married. Uh, they, they don't even think through that. But there's two things that I think constitute uh, a covenant marriage. The first is a verbal covenant oath before witnesses. So before the two become one flesh physically or sexually, there's a verbal pledge or oath or vow. Uh, we see this in Genesis 2.23 when Adam says about the woman, she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. That verbal uh, uh, commitment to this woman, that she, this woman that I'm seeing is about to be me. We're about to be one. She's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It, those, of, those who know ancient uh, Middle Eastern uh, treaties that they would create, even covenants, would recognize this is similar language. I was reading in First uh, Chronicles yesterday, uh, randomly, and came across the same language when they were coming to make a treaty, a covenant among Israel and another, that they said, bone of my bone. Uh, it's, it's covenant language, this oath, this promise. And, they're saying, and Adam's saying this before God. He's saying it before, ideally, Adam didn't have this, but everybody after Adam would have had mother and father there as witnesses because he leaves mother and father. And then I would say, in accord with the laws of the state, Hebrews 13.4, marriage is to be honored by all. Uh, marriage is not just a Christian institution. It's a creation ordinance. It's a human institution. And so the government should protect it and validate it. And so when possible, uh, marriages should be done in, in accord with the laws of the state. So for example, you can't just sit in the McDonald's parking lot and read some vows to each other and go, we said our, we said our vows to each other and we're married. Um, that, that doesn't work with the verbal covenant oath. Here's the second thing that must be done for marriage to be a marriage is sexual consummation. Sexual consummation. Um, I remember the first year pastoring, this is one of those, throw you, throw you in the deep end, make sure you know, you know what you're, you've studied your Bible a little bit. I have a guy that, uh, that I know who comes up to me and says, he had been married two weeks before that, I believe, and he said that his wife already filed for divorce. Two, two weeks into the marriage, and, uh, but then he followed it with this question, but we never consummated the marriage. And I'm like, well, you weren't really married. Because according to Genesis, the two become one flesh. And that's significant in order for a marriage to be a marriage. Uh, and, and so it says right after that, that they were naked and unashamed. So the, the shame removal in marriage uh, is that God validates it. And it's actually a, a real thing in God's eyes, a covenant between these two people uh, before God. So a verbal oath before witnesses, God and others, and a consummation of that marriage, the two becoming one flesh. It's essentially the couple saying, we invite you, God, to hold us accountable to treat one another as our own body. As our own body. And it's just an unbelievably weighty relationship to enter into. Um, one way that I try to illustrate marriage covenant 
is some of you are familiar with a story from, from 1519. Uh, Hernan Cortez arrived in the New World. He, was gonna, he wanted to seek to conquer uh, the Aztec Empire, which is obviously now Mexico. He arrives with his soldiers, about 600 soldiers. They're exhausted from the journey, but he wants to conquer uh, this empire. And nobody, none of his soldiers were motivated to fight. So what did he do? He burned the ships back to the waterline. And by burning the ships, he essentially forced his men to decide, fight or die, but you can't get out of this. Uh, There's no turning back. And I would submit to you, that's what covenant marriage is. It's saying at the wedding altar, burn the ships. There's no turning back. For better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and health, till death do us part, as long as we both shall live. It's saying, I don't want to remain one single individual. I don't even want to be a team with this person. The two will become one flesh. We are one. Ehad, the same word used that God uses, the Lord is one. A complete oneness. This is where Jesus is, he's defining covenant marriage, again, to their question, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? And Jesus is going, no, you burn the ships. The two become one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man separate. To which they respond, look at verse 7. Well, then why did Moses give one a certificate of divorce Uh, say to give one a certificate of divorce and send her away, which is our second question. Why did Moses allow for divorce if everything I just said is true? Why did Moses allow for divorce? Because this sounds like a legitimate question that they're asking at first. And it is. it, it, It is a legitimate question. I don't think their motives are right in asking it. It says they're trying to test him. Um. And, and maybe it's worth saying here, a lot of people may ask good questions, but they ask them for oftentimes bad reasons. So you think about like how many people are Googling or on YouTube searching divorce in the Bible, but they aren't going, how do I keep my marriage covenant through this difficult season? They're going, where's the religious loophole that I can get out of this thing? And I think that's the, the spirit in which these men are asking this question of, Jesus. Now, here, here's, a, here, here's what they bring up. They bring up Deuteronomy 24.1. That's their proof text, and it's very significant text. Um, and and because, because of Deuteronomy 24.1, you, you basically had two camps, a liberal and a conservative uh, school on how to interpret this text. And so the liberal school, the school of Hillel, uh, would say essentially you can divorce for any reason. So Josephus, the Jewish historian, actually uh, took this more liberal view, and he divorced his wife because he said he didn't like her manners or her behavior. And he quoted Deuteronomy 24.1. And, and specifically, what he was uh, referencing uh, was this, and I'll read the verse, it says, if she finds no, if, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some, and here's the word, indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce. So they would take that word indecency, and they would just broaden it. 
as big as you can make it, and everything fits in that category of indecency. You could divorce for any reason. That's the, the more liberal view. There was a conservative uh, group of Jewish scholars who were called the Shema, uh, School of Shema, and they were, took the word indecency to be sexual in nature and adultery, physical adultery. But they would say if physical adultery happens in marriage or in the betrothal period, the engagement period before marriage, you had to divorce. So they would make it mandatory for divorce. And so they're, they're trying to back Jesus in a corner. Where are you at on this? You, are you liberal? You conservative? How, where, where are you? Where's your view, Jesus? And Jesus doesn't pick a side. He doesn't ride the fence and take the middle position. And he doesn't play politician and not answer their question. Uh, Jesus basically says this to them. You're all wrong. Because none of you understand Deuteronomy 24.1, nor do you understand the Jewish legal system and the legal ethical codes. And so he said to them in verse 8, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. So here, here's what he's saying. He, here's, what, here's what he's saying. The reason Moses gave this law the certificate of divorce clause is because people were ending their marriage covenants for virtually any reason. You know, the wife didn't fillet the fish the way he wanted. Well, grounds for divorce. And because of that problem, Moses established the certificate not to make it easier to divorce, but to make it harder. To make it harder to divorce. So many marriage, Jew, uh, Jewish marriages were ending for almost any reason. So a husband would go, I'm tired of this wife. I'm going to get a new wife. He would get a new wife. And then he would realize, well, the first one was better than the second one. So I'll go back to the first one. And Deuteronomy 24.1 is saying it actually has stipulations on divorce and remarriage. And it's, it's, it's to protect marriage and to make it harder to divorce, not easier. But this, was, this is what was going on in Jesus' day, that many at this time were taking Deuteronomy 24.1 and they were broadening it and saying, no, you can divorce for any reason. And uh, it's interesting, you know, that 1970s song that I referenced earlier said, we don't need a piece of paper. And then these guys are saying, we need a piece of paper. But both of them have the same heart motive we just don't want our spouse. We just want to get out of this marriage. And if we need a paper, don't need a piece of paper, we don't care. We just need out of this thing. And I think the reality is that after the fall, after sin has entered the world, the default natural disposition of fallen man is to at least at some point in his marriage with his spouse to want out. And will find any loophole, especially a religious one, to avoid staying married to their spouse. And here's what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't get down in the weeds of the Jewish ethical codes and debate this with them. He gives a theological, threefold theological answer. He defines covenant marriage from Genesis 2. He factors in human fallenness. He says because of hardness of heart. 
He knows we're talking about marriage not in the Garden of Eden anymore. We're talking about marriage outside the Garden of Eden. And then he explains the Jewish ethical code from Deuteronomy 24.1 with the contingency clause that there is a ground for divorce with the issue of adultery. So verse 9 makes more sense now. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. That's his answer to the question, can we divorce our spouse for any reason? His answer, no, you can't divorce your spouse for any reason. Marriage is a lifelong commitment. They say, well, then why did Moses give certificate of divorce and allow people to divorce under the law? And he said to protect from the hardness of the human heart that's trying to get out of marriage for any reason. And he quotes and references Deuteronomy 24.1. And I think the indecency there connected to what he says about porneia, the word for sexual immorality, need to be put together. Now, this all leads up to a third question and really probably the most important one to understand what Jesus is saying about divorce. What is a marriage covenant after the fall? What is is covenant marriage when you factor in human sin? And we're not talking about a marriage in the Garden of Eden, how God originally designed it in its perfect form. What about once we're outside of Eden? What about with a sinful spouse? What about in a fallen world? And so Jesus lays out what's ideal and perfect. Genesis 2.24, two become one flesh. They would never separate. But then he gives the purpose of the law, which is to restrain human sin. And so adultery becomes a legitimate contingency clause, we could call it, or a way out of the covenant of marriage. Even in the betrothal period, So this is the the issue that we all know about uh, Joseph and Mary. We know in Matthew chapter 1, Joseph has this dilemma. He finds Mary pregnant. He knows, I didn't consummate the marriage. This isn't my child. And what comes to his mind is Deuteronomy 24.1. I have actual legal grounds to divorce my pregnant girlfriend, fiance. And divorce is actually the word the Bible uses. Matthew 1, 19, it says, Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So divorce under Jewish law was allowed. He did have legal uh, and judicial freedom, even before God, to get out of a betrothal or a marriage with this issue of adultery. The angel knows that Joseph is contemplating taking the divorce route. Explains to him the Holy Spirit's role in the whole matter. And Joseph obviously doesn't divorce Mary and moves forward with it. But my point is just this. He could have divorced her. It was lawful under the old covenant because of the contingency clause of indecency. Joseph knew that. Matthew, the author, knew that. That physical adultery was biblical grounds for divorce. But not for any reason, for one reason. 
one reason. Now, stop here for a second because I've here's what I've done so far. I've successfully walked us into a huge theological debate, a very long-standing theological uh, debate, a, a debate that is not just a few hundred years old on the issue of divorce and remarriage. It doesn't just go back to the days of the Puritans or the Reformers. It, oh, this debate didn't even start in Jesus' day. This is a debate that began as soon as Moses gave the law regarding divorce and remarriage. And this debate hasn't been solved in our day. So I want to lay out three Protestant views of how divorce and remarriage have been understood historically. There's first what we would call a semi-permanence view. The semi-permanence view would say, there are legitimate reasons to divorce a spouse, but never remarry. Second view is, a, is what's called a permanence view. They would say there is never biblical grounds to divorce a spouse or to remarry a spouse under any circumstances. That's a permanence view. And then what's called a permissive view is that there could be biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage regarding the issue of adultery. And then what we'll get to in a minute in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, an abandonment of an unbelieving spouse who leaves the marriage. Now, those are the three basic Protestant views uh, that have been held for, for a long, long time. There's no nuances with the, within each of these, but if you think that everybody lands in just one camp, you're, you're wrong. Um, if you think that this isn't difficult, you're wrong. So, for example, the permanence view that I said, that there's no divorce and no remarriage under any circumstances, uh, Bodie Bauckham takes that view. John Piper takes that view. No divorce, no remarriage under any circumstances. Uh, under the semi-permanence view that you can divorce but never remarry, you have the whole first five centuries of the early church. Literally every early church father minus Ambrose held the semi-permanence view. You can divorce, not remarry. And then the permanence view uh, is held by men like John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, John Frame, Kostenberger, Carson, virtually everyone uh, in our day. It's the popular belief in our day that there, there are biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage on the issue of adultery and the abandonment of an unbelieving spouse. Now, I've, I've taught for 15 years in this church and in private counseling. I've always taught the permissive view. Um, that, that's what I came to early on, and, and I've held to that and, and counseled uh, that way. But the semi-permanence view and the permanence view, those two minority positions in our day, are nothing to laugh at. Okay? Th these are not lightweight positions if we're talking about biblical support for them. Um, the... Uh, these minority views. In fact, if you meet somebody who has one of those two views, you should honestly respect them and respect the view because you don't just pick those views because you just pick it. They're not popular. You don't find them in a lot of commentaries. You come to those positions because you've actually really wrestled with the text. And so here's what I'm, here's what I'm trying to say. 
this is not an issue that we divide over as a church, which of these three positions we come to. When you have, you know, Piper and Bauckham taking the permanence, Augustine and all the early church fathers coming right, right from the apostolic period, taking the semi-permanence view, and then you have uh, MacArthur, Sproul, and Carson taking the permissive view, um, you, you just, you realize, okay, this is a hard issue to study. There's lots of things to consider here. Probably not a good thing for us to divide over. Not a reason to leave a church. Not a reason to get mad and, you know, yell at me for my position later in an email uh, on what I hold. Give each other grace on this. Think through this. These are not easy. I've seen many top-notch theologians actually change positions over the years, not going into a liberal position, but among these very conservative Protestant views. And I would actually, pastorally, if I could say it this way, I would encourage you to study these things out. And, and consider taking a different view than me and taking a different view from what I would say is probably the view that almost everybody in this church holds. I would actually consider you to re, restudy it. Because, and the reason I'm not hesitant to say that is because, if anything, where you will land is with a more conservative view on marriage, not a more liberal view. If you study this out biblically, you will only move toward a more strict view of the covenant marriage not a looser view. Now, I know when I say something like that, uh, some of you are thinking, well, if you're going to tell us to restudy this and maybe take a different view, why are you still holding the permissive view? That there's room for divorce and remarriage. Why would you take that view if you're actually encouraging us to look at others? And I would say because currently, as I understand the Bible right now, I don't think those other two views are right. Uh, I believe Jesus, because of Deuteronomy 24, is giving a contingency clause for sexual immorality, and he's agreeing with Deuteronomy 24.1 that there is a way out of a marriage with adultery. I don't know how it's to read this, guys. I, you know, when I look at verse 9, who, Jesus saying, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. I don't know how it's to read that. It just... I mean, I know there's people that read it different ways, and I, I understand all the, the ways they do that. I just don't know how to get around uh, Matthew 5.31, where Jesus said, uh, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I don't know how it's to read it. I don't know how it's to, to understand them that, than that Jesus is giving the same contingency clause that Moses did. That adultery is a legitimate marriage-breaking issue. Now, in the counseling room, uh, where these things really hit, you know, your theology meets your life, uh, I never just tell someone, hey, look at the you're free, you know. Um, I never encourage divorce. Only two times in 15 years have I ever told someone who was living with a habitually unfaithful person, I think you're free to divorce. But it was very difficult to do. I did not rejoice in it. But I think there comes a point where 
it is a right thing to do. But I say that to say, that person who may be freed at that moment still needs to be extremely careful that to not see themselves as right or in the innocent party because forgiveness matters to Jesus. Because many times what will happen is someone will say, oh, I've got the contingency clause, I can get out of this marriage, but they don't guard their heart and they're angry, they're bitter, they're unforgiving toward the spouse that's hurt them. And we should remember what Jesus says, 77 times 7, you forgive. You're only in the right, ever, if your heart is in the right. Maybe somebody would ask this basic question, why is adultery grounds for divorce? Why that issue? And here's here's my answer. I get it from D.A. Carson. I think he's right. He says, the indissolubility of marriage, Jesus defends by appealing to those verses from the creation accounts and are predicated on sexual union. Sexual promiscuity is therefore a de facto exception. It may not necessitate divorce, but permission for divorce and remarriage under such circumstances is in harmony with it. Here's what I think uh, Carson's saying in not the simplest way. If a marriage covenant is created through physical sexual union, that's how it's created, then physical sexual adultery can break it, can dissolve it. If, if that's what creates a marriage, physical sexual union to become one flesh, then breaking that sexually with adultery would be an undoing of that covenant. I think that's the logic in which why that issue and not other issues. And, it, and, it, and so here's what it comes back to. Can a marriage covenant really be broken? Because you say, I don't think a marriage covenant could ever be broken. Well, then you're going to land in the permanence camp. And say, regardless of whatever happens, you can never actually break a marriage covenant. Well, now you're in the permanence camp. If you say, well, I think there are things that could break a marriage covenant, you're going to land in the permissive and semi-permanence camp. Let me say one more thing here about uh, the contingency clauses. Some of y'all know I'm forgetting one, but there isn't just one, there's two that the Bible gives. And the other one is in 1 Corinthians 7. And we're actually going to study this. Uh, we're going to study this next week. So I'm only going to read this for us now. First Corinthians seven fifteen says this: If the unbelieving partner separates, leaves, abandons the marriage, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you. To peace. So that's why I would say to someone, there are biblical grounds for divorce only with, a, with adultery and with the abandonment of an unbelieving spouse. Now, the, uh, some of y'all know the, the Westminster Confession actually in their little section on marriage includes that. I'll read that for us. Uh, they, they say this, in the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce. And after the divorce, to marry another as if the offending party were dead. It's kind of a blunt way to say it, but um, get what they're saying. And then they say this, those whom God has joined together in marriage, yet nothing but adultery or willful desertion, that is of an unbeliever, is 
cause sufficient for, of dissolving the bond of marriage. It's the Westminster Confession. I, it's worth noting the London Baptist Confession, which is copied and pasted from most of the Westminster, omits that and actually doesn't include what I just read for whatever that's worth. They apparently didn't think, maybe didn't think this position was solid enough to include in the London Baptist Confession. Now here's where this gets practical um, because I'm raising a bunch of questions and I'm going to try to answer about 20 of those questions right now. Um, all of this, if, if, if all of this is right and we're understanding Matthew 19 correctly, this would mean there are 10,000 things that could go bad in a marriage that could make a marriage extremely difficult, but they wouldn't be biblical grounds for divorce. So for example, I don't love my spouse anymore. Not biblical grounds for divorce. We're not happy anymore. Not biblical grounds for divorce. I married the wrong person. Not biblical grounds for divorce. They changed. They're not the person that I married originally. Not biblical grounds for divorce. This person's lazy and unmotivated. They won't work. They just play video games and watch TV all day. They don't do... Not biblical grounds for divorce. They're responsible with money. They shop. They have gambling problems. They're wasting all their money away. Not biblical grounds for divorce. They won't work. Can't hold a job. Not biblical grounds. They blasphemy and hate God. They lie and deceit. They're habitually lying to me. Not biblical grounds for divorce. They refuse to have children. Not biblical grounds for divorce. They have addictions, alcohol, drugs. Not biblical grounds for divorce. They're verbally abusive. Not biblical grounds for divorce. They're physically abusive. Call the police. And then tell the pastor and let us help you as we've done for many couples throughout the years. Get out into a safe place but it's not biblical grounds for divorce. What about a lengthy incarceration? This one doesn't come up a lot, but it does come up. Someone gets arrested, they're in jail for 50 years, they send a letter back to their spouse, say, honey, I'm going to be here forever. I want you to have a life. I want you to remarry. Can you just sign the paper so you can have a life? Not biblical grounds for divorce. Someone says, I was an unbeliever when I divorced and I didn't have biblical grounds, but I was an unbeliever. New things have come. Old things have passed away. Not biblical grounds for divorce. So guys, here's what I'm getting at. With all three of these views, okay, everything I said applies to all three of those positions. This door is extremely narrow when you study what the Bible says here. Our culture opens it and gives you 10,000 reasons for divorce. The Bible at best gives two. 
And I might be wrong about that. And it could be zero. I'm willing to admit that I could be wrong. But if I'm wrong, it's not that you have 10 reasons or you'll find that you have 15 or, you know, 85. You'll find that you have no reasons. If I'm wrong, it's that direction, not toward there's a lot more than what we've seen. There may be no contingency clauses at all, and so again, I would encourage you to study it out yourself and come to your convictions on how serious God is about our marriage covenants. Now, I want to I want to end by doing uh, by by one more thing here. If somebody were to ask this question, it is a legitimate question. Why does God care that we stay married and not divorced? Why does God care about that? Because God does care about this. He cares about it way more than we do. In fact, Malachi 2.16, the KJV puts it like this, God hates divorce. You say, well, why does God hate divorce? Because He loves because he, he loves, and, here, and here's what he loves. He loves your children. He loves your children. God hates divorce because he loves your kids. Malachi 2, where it says God hates divorce, after that, and, and, and the surrounding context, seems to suggest one of the reasons God hates divorce, if not the primary reason, is because he says your marriage is to produce godly offspring. That's one of the fundamental reasons for marriage. And a divorce could greatly hinder your ability to raise up godly offspring. If you don't believe me, ask someone who's trying to raise godly offspring with shared custody. It's not easy. So maybe it isn't, maybe you don't love your spouse enough to stay married. Maybe you don't love the Lord enough to stay married. Do you love your children enough? I appeal to your sweet children to not hurt them like that. Emotionally, relationally, spiritually, and not even, not even that alone. But it will hinder greatly your ability to raise godly offspring. Now, here's a greater motive than, than that. Um, I don't think there's any circumstance that we could come into that, is, that gives us a greater uh, opportunity as married couples to display the unending love and mercy of Christ like marriage, especially when it gets difficult. Think about Yahweh and Israel in Hosea 2. To an ad adulterous Israel going after other lovers, verse 19 says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Hosea 3.1, the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is not loved by another and is an adulteress. Here, here's, what, here's what God's saying to Israel. If you keep going after these other lovers, eventually I'm going to give you over to them and I will divorce you. But if you turn and you return to me in faithfulness, I will love you 
I will keep my covenant with you. So we see that in the old covenant. And in the new covenant, what do we see? Ephesians 5.31, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. If you forget everything else that I've said today about divorce and remarriage, remember your marriage is to picture Christ and the church. Try to keep that. Try to image that above all. And I think where that happens the good majority of our problems will be worked through. Here's my, my pastoral uh, implications of all this. Uh, if you come to us as pastors, Kent or myself, and I would even say this on behalf of the, the biblical counselors in the church, I think the counsel that you're going to get is uh, we will always encourage you to stay married. With extreme minor exception based off of what I've shown today. Our counsel is going to be, you can work through this. This is fixable. The Lord can work. Which leads to the second. You will always, uh, we will always walk with you through difficult marriages with a view toward repentance and reconciliation. Guys, I am extremely hopeful, even with, with adulterous situations, that God can restore and redeem that marriage. I'm, I'm, I'm way more hopeful than the couple ever is in those situations. And I try to bring my hope to them from, from Scripture. And, and let me just say lastly, those of you in the church who are divorced and remarried, you are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God or this church. Our God is a God that redeems, that restores, that beautifies things that were even began in sin, and he gets glory in and through them, does he not? Uh, at, at the foot of the cross, we are all on equal ground. When we come to the table, there is no divorced and remarried. There is no people who've been married and haven't divorced. We all come to Christ clean and forgiven. And so let the weight of the gospel land on you even this morning as we come to the table. Guys, as we come to the table, I just want us to think of what Jesus calls this table. He says it's what? A new covenant in my blood. A new covenant in my blood. I will never leave or forsake you because of the blood of this covenant. That is Christ's promise to us. May we rest in that this morning. Uh, if you are new and don't know how we take this, uh, we believe Christ has given this supper to those who have received the new covenant in his blood. They've received Christ and they've been baptized in his name. If that's you, please join us. Uh, if you'll be refraining, I'd encourage you to find on page two of your bulletin some very meaningful prayers that you can pray during this time. Father, we praise you for your son called the bridegroom, the husband, and you call us the church, your bride. And you demonstrate to us how to endure very difficult circumstances, much sin. And yet, Christ, you continually forgive and give mercy. 
and reconcile us and renew us. And Lord, you promise us that you will never leave or forsake us. And so, Lord, we pray you help that be the testimony of all of our marriages. That we would bind ourselves to one another. And Lord, where things get very difficult and where there is marital unfaithfulness, Lord, give great wisdom. Give us great wisdom on these matters and how we think about them and how we speak to one another. And Lord, we know that you're with us in the midst of all these things. We pray that you reestablish our confidence in the gospel even today at this table. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.